Uh, good to see you again. Uh, some of you were here in the two previous lessons that I had on two very uh, outspoken, quite influential uh, atheists who are not just not believing in God, but also making claims that no one should believe in God and it's wrong for society to allow uh, religious activity. And the first one was Christopher Hitchison, the second one was uh, Dawkins, the English biologist. And today we're looking at an American philosopher named Daniel Dennett. He uh, teaches at Tufts University. Let me get situated here. I knew I was going to have trouble with that. I'll move to the table. Sometimes tech gets in the way, doesn't it? But, here we go. Now, let me say this before I start looking at some of his ideas, and I'll show you a picture of him. And that is, again, my point, I mentioned this two weeks ago, or now a month ago. My point is not to how we can become very haughty in our own claims about the truth of religion and certainty of our faith, and, and that we are intellectually superior to these people. That is not my point. In fact, I've been in the intellectual academic world enough to know that there is no superiority. There isn't. Everybody claims it, but there is none. There's always room for another side of the argument. And, and so that's not my point, that we can walk away from these brief little meetings looking at these thinkers thinking, well, we've got it all settled and they're all wrong. That's not it. I hope what to do, though, is twofold. One is to pay attention to the challenge, and it is a very, very serious challenge, not just in some room in an academic building, but that these people are getting a lot of press, their books are millions and millions read by, other, by all people, and it's gaining a sort of a momentum in our culture. And so I think we need to, to pay attention to that, to see how intellectually the church should respond to this. And I think that's part of our responsibility. That is, we are to, in a sense, give a good testimony of our faith, and there are challenges brought up to that. What's the right way, then, to give a good testimony of faith to these challenges? But the other side of this is just as true, and that is, uh, at the heart of our faith is to, well, as the Apostle Paul says, we look upon no one according to the flesh, but according to Christ. Even these people who say we don't have a right, and we'll see this with Dennett, to teach our children that there is a God who created this world. He insists that we don't have that right. In fact, we're going to look at a speaker next week who says that Christians should be put into jail. Uh, well, how do we respond to these people who are so adversarial in a Christian spirit? Well, if, if this is in any way breeds any sense of arrogance and judgmentalism, I have failed at this. My, to me, and I think I shared this with you a couple of weeks ago, to me one of the biggest challenges of the Christian life is how to hold in balance the certitude of the claims of Christianity but non-judgmentalism and humility to those who don't share that with us. How to do both of those. It's not an either or, it's both. How to do that. All right, with that said then, <clears throat> I want to look at this third of the four that I'm going to, actually I'm going to look at five uh, in these four Sundays, and this is uh, Daniel Dennett. Here's a picture of him. Uh, he looks the quintessential philosopher, doesn't he? Um, he teaches, had a long, very, he has a very long celebrated career at Tufts University. He writes in a wide range of uh, subjects, primarily in the philosophy of science, and uh, he has a big reputation. I hear, though I've never met him, I've not seen him, that he's a very amiable person, a good conversationalist. He's not a, you know, a real hard-nosed, uh, brittle sort of person, but he could be kind and a very good uh, public speaker as well. But here's the first big book in which he opens his challenge against Christianity, and this is the first one that I read. And I'll come back and talk about this book 
in just a bit. I've got it over here if any of you want to look at it after our class. It's called Darwin's Dangerous Ideas, published in 1995. And the one that has uh, really hit the press and quite widely read in our society at this moment is this one that was published uh, seven years ago, 2006, Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And so the first book, he looks primarily at why science proves to us that there is no God, in particular Darwinian evolution science. And then in the second book, he shows how we can explain religion according to natural phenomenon, that there is no supernatural or transcendent base to religion, that we can successfully explain religion as a natural phenomenon within culture. And so it's sort of a two-pronged criticism against religion, Christianity in particular. Okay, now I'm going to divide my response according to those two books. The first one here is uh, <clears throat> the dangerous idea. And so what is that? What does he think is uh, the dangerous idea of Charles Darwin? What did he write? What did he say that is a dangerous, not just a provocative, interesting, informative, but threat, challenge, dangerous idea? And this is a quote from him. An impersonal, unreflective, robotic, robotic, mindless little scrap of molecular machinery is the ultimate basis of all the agency and hence meaning and hence consciousness in the universe. And he meant the word all there. Everything from the birth of stars to your conscious at this moment, your consciousness at this moment, from the love of your family to uh, mathematics can be explained here by this impersonal, unreflective, robotic, mindless little scrap of molecular energy. And that is, everything has evolved naturally by physical cause. And what we experience today in our human lives, the great aesthetic sense of beauty, the great passions of love, the great intuitions of, of truth, uh, these are, in a sense, results of this evolutionary development within the universe. And so he is a, a quintessential representative of a, what one would call scientism. That is, science can explain everything, not just physics or chemistry or genetic drift or astrological formations, but everything. Everything can be explained by science. And in particular, that aspect of science that can do that is uh, evolution. Evolution then becomes the key that unlocks all the mysteries of the world. In fact, is one of his claims that there, there, that there is no mystery. There is no mystery. One of these days, evolutionary science will be able to explain for everything, not just the development of species or genetic drift across species, but everything. That's a, that's a big claim, huge, huge claim to make. And he is a representative of that. All right, now this is one of the insights, I guess, or at least one of its uh, most uh, rememberable claims that he makes in the book, and that is natural selection works as an algorithm. You remember your, your old algebra calculus days? Scott, did you take calculus? I did. All right. Can you tell us what an algorithm is? Well, the first time I took calculus. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't really give you a definition. All right. Well, uh, it's a mathematical concept. Okay. Uh, that, uh, that is, there's a pattern of numbers that repeat themselves. It's rule-based. 
And so an algorithm, in fact, our computers have algorithms in there. They're, they're rule-based, and they know how to sort of, that is, the rule has a built-in rule to create another rule, and that's an algorithm. And it's a very fruitful concept, by the way, no doubt about it. I mean, whoever came up with the first notion of such a thing like that really opened up a lot of insight into mathematics. Well, he uses that concept, that is, there's a rule that operates in nature that creates its own patterning consequences to explain how the world, everything, our consciousness, all this has come into existence. Our algorithm is a certain sort of formal process that can be counted on logically to yield a certain sort of result whenever it is run or instantiated. Like as I turned on this computer and the algorithm got kicked in and now it's sort of feeding on itself in a way, creating rules as it goes along. Well, he says that's, that's what happens with nature. There's an algorithm at work. Now, that's a mathematical construct, an algorithm. The whole notion of rule creating a rule-based pattern is an intellectual construct. He sees this as the natural selection process, that just as this algorithm that's at work in my computer is very predictable, very mechanical, so is this natural selection process that goes into nature. It's just as predictable, just as mechanical. Well, here's what he says is the effects, then, of this algorithm upon nature itself. One is mechanical. There's no outside force that explains it. It's mechanical. Like when you, when you leave, you go to your car, you stick your key in, you turn it, it turns on. It's mechanical. I mean, I, I'm totally, oh, well, I'm about, what, maybe 87% ignorant of what goes on in my motor, but I, I, it's all pretty mechanical. I can go to my mechanic and, you know, he, he's got it figured out. Well, same thing with nature. There is no real mystery in nature. It's all mechanical, worked, working by this, this algorithm. Secondly, it's without a teleology, which is a big word. Ultimately, that means a goal in nature. There is no goal of this. It's just being pushed. It's not being pulled. Nature doesn't have a goal to which it is evolving, but is being pushed by this, this algorithm. And third, it's mindless. There is no intentionality to nature. There's no grand designer. There's no God who orders the universe. It's, it's a mindless, purposeless, intentionalless design that is being created by this algorithm. And fourthly, it builds upon each other. Every subsequent generation is building upon the previous in nature because of this algorithm. There are no sort of big jumps, no mysterious gaps that exist within creation at all. So this is quite an agenda to adopt. That is, one of these days, we'll be able to explain everything. Does he have a theory as to how the algorithm got started? No, and he doesn't need to. Now, I, I, I know why you asked that question. I think it's a good question to ask. You know, the big question, you know, why is there something rather than nothing? It's not just an adolescent question. I mean, it's a serious philosophical, religious question. But see, because he thinks this algorithm can account for all things then he, he feels no burden even to ask the question. We feel the burden to ask that question because we think there is a designer to all this. That's why we, we're interested in this question. Why is there existence rather than not? Why does the world exist as it does <coughs> than not? Because we're looking for a way to understand how God is a creator and all this. But you know, if, I, if I'm not interested in that, then, then don't even ask the question. That, that's his point. Now, to me that sounds like you know, an end run or punting on third down or, or whatever, uh, he's balking at this. 
the seriousness of that question. In fact, if I had more time, I would look at some of his specific responses to the what one could call the traditional arguments for God's existence. Uh, though I, I will admit, none of them are, are home runs. I mean, you, maybe sometime or another you studied one of those, what's called the cosmological argument for God's existence, or the, the argument from the design of nature to God's existence, or what was called the ontological argument for God's existence. I mean, I, I sort of make a living knowing those things. And I find them still very provocative, but I admit, they're not knockouts. They're not home runs. They, they don't conclude the matter of whether a God exists. They just make it a reasonable pursuit that there is a God. It's reasonable to think that. Well, he just dismisses it. I mean, he said, don't even, we're not interested in that. Therefore, it's not important. Well, because the only thing I'm interested in is explaining the algorithm. All right, now, this is another one of his innovative uh, points that he brings up in the book, and that's the distinction between skyhooks and cranes. Uh, interesting metaphors here. Uh, a skyhook is what can hang from above and grab something. A crane is what is positioned on the ground and pulls something up. All right, he wants to contrast that. If you believe in a God who created the world, a transcendent God, or what he calls a supernatural God, then you believe in a skyhook, something that exists above creation and that works on it. But if you're a naturalist, a materialist, like he is, you believe in cranes. That is what moves nature, once again, is this algorithm that propels the evolutionary development of everything. It is a crane, not a skyhook. Okay, look at his... his his definitions of this. Design in nature comes from cranes, not skyhooks. Cranes are natural processes guided by the algorithm of evolution. Skyhooks, therefore, are impossible because they presume a supernatural vantage point and beliefs in them are ignorant beliefs. And he really means that. In fact, that's his word, ignorant. If one believes that God is a creator in some way is part of the design or all of the design of the world, then that's a form of ignorance because you believe in a skyhook and there are no skyhooks. There's no vantage point outside of nature to explain the evolution of nature. There's not. Yes? Are ignorant part of that Some people uh, have challenged him and many others who argue this. Uh, though he doesn't address it specifically in that book, uh, I forget where he says, um, I meant to bring this into my... my PowerPoint. Uh, this will get to your question. Uh, in uh, let, hold on, hold on. I think I no. I want that sheet of paper there, Scott. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm looking for the year. He wrote a New York Times editorial, I think maybe two, three years ago, in which uh, I think I have it written here, in which he talked about that there, there's the contrast between what he calls the brights and the dulls. The brights, of which he is one, uh, are the true descendants of the Enlightenment, that period in Europe in which people moved, I don't have this written down, moved to, uh, one more favorite, the thick one, the thick book, um, there you go, uh, moved away from relying upon the authority of the church, Aristotle's cosmology, moved into more the advance of, of uh, critical reasoning and the influence of science. That was the Enlightenment. People like John Locke, uh, 
Immanuel Kant and others are very much identified with that. That has moved to a period where now we know that naturalized, I mean, naturalistic materialism is the only true way to look at the world. Hence, people who look at that way of the world are brights. Those who don't look at that are the dulls, so to speak. All religious people are dull people. They have rejected the Enlightenment and its influence. I'm not going to leave through that. Just accept my word. It's in the New York Times. Here it is. I just found it. It was in 2003, excuse me, July the 12th, 2003. It's called The Bright Stuff. Anyway, he deals with these people, like me, as just kind of a, a, as, as a residue in the development of evolution, and eventually this will be evolved away. We'll evolve away from that. He calls like such... This looks... I mean, he sounds like yeah. Well, that's right. There were a lot of people like Springler and others who felt that, that we would be moving into a scientific age. Freud felt that way that somewhere near the end of the 20th century, there wouldn't be any more religious belief. And um, he, he mentions what's called MEMS, M-E-M-E, -E, comes from Dawkins. I think we might have mentioned that two or three weeks ago. These are cultural patterns that are developed by the, the natural patterns that are replicated in culture. And sometimes those cultural patterns get skewed or, or distorted from the natural patterns of nature. And eventually though, because they are skewed or distortions, they will eventually wither away. That is, they will not be able to replicate themselves because nature will no longer be able to supply that. His argument is that basically there will come a time when people won't be religious because there won't be a natural reason to be religious. So he thought the mems were there just as a part of perpetuating the species. Right. That we needed it for a while, but we don't That's right. slowly not need they're cultural replicators, he called them. Religion is a cultural replicator. And he will admit this later on, that the religion has done some good things. A lot of great people have been religious people. He mentions Newton, some other people. And provided great buildings like this one and great traditions and so on. And we shouldn't necessarily lose all that. He wants to keep the, the benefits of religion, just get rid of God. We don't need that. That's a hindrance to us. Well, uh, now, here's one of the more controversial things that he says. Oh, sorry. And uh, that is, what do we do with parents who teach their children that there is a God, a supernatural, transcendent reality, who created the world and is involved in the evolution, the design of this? Uh, he said they should be prohibited from misinforming their children. They should be caged or disarmed. That's his word, page 516. So if you teach your children that God created the world and is some way involved in that. Now, in particular, he is critical of, you know, the, the what's called the, the, er, the, the late, is it early creation or late creation? Anyway, those people who argue that the world is a little over 6,000 years old. Very critical of them, and I am too. I, 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 there's no evidence for that. And uh, he's very, very critical of creationism. You know, these people argue that there are six days of creation and so on. But then he assumes that any belief in God involved in creation is the same, logically the same, as if you're a late earther or if you believe in six literal creation days. If you believe in a God who is a creator in any fashion, you are logically the same as them. And if you insist on teaching your children, you should be, as he says, um, disarmed for doing that, or maybe even caged. Uh, I don't know. I, it's almost like 
he's attacking the NRA or something. I don't know. Um, Does maybe, that put him in the same camp with the other ones that's hostile toward Christianity? I thought, I thought you said at first he wasn't one of the hostile. No, no, he is. He, is just he, he himself is an affable sort of gentle person, but his ideas are very, very adversarial. And I mean, this in, in the second book, we'll see this too, in even a little more of a vitriolic way. Um, I mean, this is a real challenge. I mean, he is attacking something here very, very fundamental, not just to society, but to the role of parenting. Anyway, if you teach your children that, you're doing a disservice to them. In fact, he says, he says that's a form of child abuse. Safety demands. Yes? There's now what? A crime. Oh. Punishable crime. Well, no, I'm not aware of that. I did read that they can't try to evangelize. Well, look at what he says here on page 515. <clears throat> Safety demands that religion be put in cages like the beautiful but dangerous lions when absolutely necessary. We just cannot have forced female circumcision. Anyone for that? I'm being sarcastic. Um, and the second-class status of women in Roman Catholicism. Anybody for that? Uh, and Mormonism to say nothing of their status in Islam. Well, of course, one can be opposed to those things, as I am. But that doesn't mean that the teaching of religion to children is the same as that. That is, if I taught my children, as I did, that God, there is a God, there is a creator, is that the tantamount to saying that we should circumcise adolescent girls? Of course it's not. But he lumps those all together. It's a straw man argument, by the way. All right, now let's look at... Um, what he says here in the second book. I have a time in which I'll sort of bring up some points in criticism to these. Okay, breaking the spell. Well, what is that spell? Here's what he says it is. The spell that I say must be broken is the taboo against a forthright scientific no-hold-barred investigation of religion as one natural phenomenon among many. That is, we need to study religion not as a truth claim about God, or human destiny, but about just a natural phenomenon in the same way that governments arose, same way civic organizations arise in the society, same way that anything sort of emerges over generations. Can we study religion in the same way? And he says we must do that. Now, I'll say this. Uh, he's not the first to do this. The study of religion from a natural point of view has been going on for a long, long time. It's almost as though, at last now, somebody's going to lead us in this effort to do so, and he's the one to do it. But he says it's a taboo. That is, religious people resist that kind of analysis. That is, we do not want to be studied as any other natural phenomenon. We resist it. There's the taboo, and so we have a spell over a society. Now, you can talk about the evolution of, of, of culture, of governments, of economics, of social institutions, but hands off of religion. It's got a spell over it because it's a taboo. He says, I'm going to break that. And so this is what he does. Okay, the reader, he, he says, this is why religions exist. Religion exists for this, these three reasons. Uh, 
to comfort us in our suffering and allay our fear of death, to explain things we cannot otherwise explain, to encourage group cooperation in the face of trials and enemies. That's why there is religion. Whoever the first person was, some Cro-Magnum, I guess, or maybe a Neanderthal that said there's a transcendent being, that person came to that conclusion because they want comfort to explain and to form cooperation with others. So he felt now, or he claims, that he has come up with a natural explanation for the existence of religion in general. All religious people, then, are religious for this particular, these particular reasons. That's right. That's right. They have been saying this. Freud says it. Freud puts it in a very negative fashion. That is, it's a form of psychosis. And as you know, well, no, Marx said it was a form of you know, the sigh of the oppressed. Uh, yeah, the people have been saying this. And you know, Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous German philosopher, said it's a fine. It's a sign of. Um, I mean, religion was a result of, um, of, of 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 envy towards other people. That's why we're religious. We we envy other people. So these sort of psychological explanations have been around. But again, he thinks he is now giving us a natural explanation of religion as a phenomenon. And just as maybe, you know, if I were a psychologist, a counselor, and somebody comes in and sees me about a problem because of my knowledge and my experience, I can pretty well quickly identify, okay, you've got a family problem, you've got a you know, sexual issue, you've got an issue at, with authority, you got a, you know, you're dealing with despair or depression. I could identify that. So here he is, he's done this research. You come in and you say, I'm a religious person. Okay, you want comfort, don't you? You want to learn to cooperate with other people, don't you? You want a, a system to explain things. Now, uh, of course, one can respond to this, I think, rather quickly. Just, uh, And I'm a little ahead of myself. I'll say more about this later. Uh, those, th those things can explain most everything. If you're married, did you get married because you thought there'd be some comfort to that? Yeah. Did you get married because it helps kind of explain who you are at your point in life? Yeah. Did you get married because it's a way of maybe learning to cooperate with somebody else and maybe form a unit as large as that? Yeah. In some ways, these are these are almost banal. Uh, you can explain everything according to these. There's not much insight, in other words, to say this is why religion occurred. Because frankly, most everything occurs because of this. And also, I'd say on the other side of that, I don't know. This may be true with, with some of you. Um, my religion doesn't give me a lot of comfort sometimes. It says, I, I'm, a, I'm a depraved sinner in need of repentance, and that's not a comfortable thing. Also, my own sense of doubt causes discomfort in my life. I know my failures do. That's, you know, I, that's why my face is so wrinkled. Um, and I can't explain everything. I really cannot. I have no mysterious epistemological key that unlocks all the riddles of the universe just because I have faith. All right. Here's my point. This is just way, way too simple to explain the origins of religion. Okay, here are some characteristics of folk religion, or what one could call primitive religion. Uh, that didn't come out real well in the, uh, the typing. Uh, this is why people formed religious activities. We psychologically know why. Now here is the structure of religion. Vivid imagination about agents in nature that puzzle and frighten us like thunderstorms and wild animals and things that go you know, bump in the night. Uh, two, ancestral worship. The need to be connected with and to revere our family. That's one reason why religion took form. We, we don't want to lose our parents. Divination. We need someone who hears God. 
we think there's a God out there, these agencies that control us, who can speak on, for, uh, from them? Who can tell us about what they want? So we have these shamans in this, number four, as, as hypnotists, uh, someone to speak for the agents. So we need to hear from God, so we want divination, and we need someone to speak for these gods. And so we have shamans. And then rituals are developed, as he says, as memory enhancement processes that go on. So these are the five characteristics of folk religion. Now, we're not you know, primitive religions, I guess. But he says uh, we still have the same characteristics. Organized religion, which is modern-day religion, is a carryover from folk religion, transformed into the structures, the institutions, the elaborate doctrines that we have now. But at the root, though, our organized religion is still based on those five characteristics of folk religion. It's used primarily, though, to control people. Now, this is his explanation. Religion is used to control people, justifying what he called the kleptocrats. What's a kleptocrat? Anyone know? Kleptocrat. Krat means to sort of dominate, Klepto, like kleptomania. It's these people who are obsessed with controlling things. It's a form of obsession. So your, your ministers here, they're kleptocrats. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's right. That's why you hire them. You want to be kleptocratic. Uh, you want dominance. That is, uh, that's his explanation of this. Organized religion is used to control people. Because we all exist in a very competing, conflicting society. And so we need to align ourselves with someone that helps us give us some stability. Now, of course, some people are this way, no doubt about it. And I know a lot of people who are religious just because they want comfort and explanation and learn how to cooperate with other people. That does explain some people. I admit that. And he may be right. But I don't think it explains religion in general or in principle. I don't think it does. I think it's too, too far-reaching of a claim to say that, in that it explains some people, it explains all people. In logic, we call that you know, the, the fallacy of, of composition. Like in baseball, if you have the very best all-star at first base, that doesn't mean your team is the very best all-star team, does it? In fact, you could have every all-star player in, in each position. I mean, each position could be an all-star player, and that still doesn't mean you're going to win the World Series. It may be true that some people are religious just for comfort and explanation cooperation. It may be that there is kleptocracy that goes on in some religious circles where there is a very dominant hierarchy who, who sort of suppresses any dissent. That may be. But that is not necessarily an explanation of the principle of religion. What he's saying is similar to what the prophets say in the Old Testament in their criticism of the established religious right. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the prophets uh, would agree with him on that. Yeah, but he doesn't factor that in. Yeah. <clears throat> Religion is just belief and belief. That's all it is. The doctrine of the Trinity is interesting a notion, but it's not about reality. It's a belief and a belief. There is a God. You don't have any scientific evidence for that, though. It's just a belief, groundless. Here's the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a belief on a belief. It's two steps removed from reality. So it's not really about anything. And he calls it a toxic mem. This cultural replication is toxic. It's poisonous. It does harm in society. We should only have beliefs that are grounded in reality. That's informed by science, in particular, a Darwinian evolution. There's no rational basis for religion. 
Uh, now he comes back to you as a parent and what you do with your children. Uh, parents cannot teach religious beliefs. Is he a parent? Yes. They cannot teach religious beliefs if they are taught as one through fear or hatred. Scott, you have children? Why? Why are you, do you teach your child out of fear or ha hatred? No, but I, I do think that I mean, my religion is not, my personal religion is not based on fear or hatred. Right. Um, but I mean, all through this, I mean, I'm thinking of examples where he's right. I'm not saying no God he is, is right. I'm just right. saying that he's right. And I'm thinking of the email I'm going to write you. But, you know, I think a lot of people do, uh, well, I don't know if I can say that, but I have a sense that some people do preach their kids uh, fear, perhaps, of others or hatred of others. I agree with you, and he is right in doing that. So I don't teach that. But. Yeah. Well, here's where I differ with him. In that, uh, that is wrong for someone to do that. If you if you teach your child that they would go to hell, that they would live a tormented life, tormented life, if they your child disagrees with you on this, that is a form of child abuse. But what he says then is that he makes the next step that any teacher in religion would be that, if it assumes that there's a supernatural God. If you teach your child that there's a supernatural God, it's the same as though you were forcing your child to believe in that, that doctrine on fear or hatred. Two, by disabling them from inquiry, by denying them an education, for instance, or keeping them entirely isolated from the world. I agree with that. Uh, you know, I have one child, my children are 29, 27, uh, one who is pretty pretty much agrees with me, most of all things religiously, and I've, I've never tried to hoodwink him or twist his arm on that, and the other one doesn't. The other one doesn't. And I've had to allow him to go his own way. Uh, I've not tried to browbeat him or to condemn him for disagreeing with me on this, but he's going his own way. That's the only way it can go. And so I agree with that. However, though, he would assume any teaching of a supernatural God would be the prohibiting of free inquiry. And if you cannot do this, you should become extinct. Religion should become extinct if it cannot teach itself without fear or hatred or the prohibiting of uh, intellectual inquiry. Religion should become... And, and, and in some ways, I do think a lot of religious activity should become extinct. There has been tremendous oppression and ignorance propagated by religious beliefs. No doubt about it. But as, again, my challenge to this is, does that explain all religion in principle? And I don't think it does. All right, I've got three responses. Yes, Victor? You know, it's just so interesting hearing him. He's got obviously strong values about what he believes is both right and wrong. <clears throat> but maybe in the book he articulates how he arrives at those things. But you know, Right. Right. An yeah. algorithm doesn't have morals. Right. An algorithm doesn't have a should. It just does whatever it does. Right. So I don't see how he gets a should out of any of this. Should we abuse our children or should we not abuse our children? Right. Because some animals in nature do abuse their children. 
But his his response to that is that we have developed these cultural mims, these cultural replicators that are moral and patterned after nature. Yeah, we, we have senses of obligation because of these cultural mims. I mean, child sacrifice was <coughs> the Carthaginians and the Aztecs, you know, for thousands of years. Right. Well, here's my first response. Uh, Darwin's idea is it's so dangerous. Okay, I've tried to condense this. I will admit that I might oversimplify his argument in doing so. Uh, But this is the way I see it. Uh, This is how he puts it. Either the design of nature comes by a skyhook or a crane. Only cranes exist. Therefore, a skyhook could not design nature. Uh, that's a logical fallacy, as that argument is. Now, of course, I could set this up easily to come up with a logical fallacy, but I think it's his main appeal. You either believe in God, who is a supernatural being who has designed the world, or you believe in Darwinian evolution. All right, Darwinian evolution explains the world, therefore there is no supernatural God. Well, uh, quite honestly, the logical fallacy in that is called the fallacy of disjunctive argument. If something is either A or not or B, uh, if it's not A, it will be B. But just because something is A doesn't mean it's not going to be B, if it's either A or B. For instance, we could say either this meeting is in this room or the room over the, across the wall, across the, the room there. It's either here or across the way. Or if you come in here and you see that it's we're not here, it will be over there. But you could come in here and we'd all be here. Does that mean it's impossible for the meeting to also be over there? No, it could be also going over there. We could have closed-circuit television or something like that. Or we get everybody looking at a computer stream. Well, he said it's either one of these others. I'm going to show to you that science can account for all this. Therefore, there is no God. My point is this. It could be both. There could be evolutionary design in nature and God also be part of it. Just because science successfully explains things as it does. I have no problem with an evolutionary explanation of these things. None. However, though, that does not mean there is no God who is not supernatural and also is not involved within that. God can work through these things. That is a logical possibility. But he says it's not. Here's my second response. What about this spell? I've already sort of touched on some of that. That is, um, I think there's a circular argument that's involved in his his claim here. He says that religion uh, can be explained naturally. His naturalistic explanation assumes God cannot exist because it's impossible in a materialistic world for God to exist. He offers naturalistic accounts of religion and claims that God is not needed to account for them. Therefore, he asserts that he has broken the spell and has shown that religion, in fact, does not rely on a divine reality. That's a circular argument. That is, uh, we don't need God to explain the natural phenomenon of religion. I can explain the natural phenomenon of religion. Therefore, there is no God. That's a circular argument. Now let me say something about this. I, I, I may overreact to this. I, I, I admit that um, uh, I, I possibly overreact to this thing about parents and children. Should parents be caged or disarmed? I will grant that that may be a hyperbole on his part. But the intent though is to stop the education, the religious education that assumes that there is a God that's transcendent who created the world. Stop that. All right. Okay, uh, Dennett assumes his view of evolutionary naturalism is infallible, normative, 
and if any of you are scientists who study this, though no one really doubts natural causes for natural effects, that's the essence of science right there, natural causes for natural science. Uh, but there's a lot of variety of opinions and debate in the big picture of evolution. He has narrowed it down to just one view, this algorithmic interpretation of it. And what he has said then, if you disagree with that, then you should be prohibited from teaching your children that there is a God who transcended the creator of the world. So he has kind of made a dogmatic claim about his notion of evolution. And that leads me to two. It's, it's dogmatism prohibited a challenge to that. What if I did want to come up with an idea that could account for evolution and theism at the same time, as many people do? What if I wanted to do that? He would prohibit that. That's, that's not allowed. It's interesting that he sees himself as a child of the Yeah. Now, here's where I may be overstepping. Just take it with a grain of salt. Think about it. It's uh, potentially politically tyranny to suggest this prohibition should be public policy. I think so. To start to argue that this should be public policy, that parents cannot teach their children that God is a creator, is a step towards political tyranny. Now, there are things, you know, we obviously shouldn't abuse our children. You know, we, we shouldn't, you know, and I, I agree with the federal laws, state laws that prohibit child abuse, physical, sexual, even emotional abuse. But is the teaching of God as a creator the same as that? And I don't think it is. I think it, he has made a very far-reaching claim with that argument. And so I see a, a, a potentially disastrous kind of consequence for such a claim as that. Now, that's what he says. I'm not making this up. That's what he says. Cage or disarm. Now, one little controversial thing that he says in the book, he said we should put Baptist, of which, you know, I am a little bit Baptist, uh, in zoos. That's what he says. They should be kept in cages in zoos to be looked at, but not to be let out. That's a metaphor, I hope. I hope that's a metaphor. as a, you know, provocative rhetorical device to show how serious he is about that. But um, he's definitely wanting to say that these things do not have any role in public life. Yes? I'm just thinking this utopia that he would create is really impossible because Paul talks about um, people have no excuse for not believing in God because of all the creation. Right. Yeah, that's his argument. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, I don't think he wins his argument. I really don't. I think he's provocative. He's a good writer. He's very innovative with his sort of metaphors and concepts like the skyhook versus crane thing, the algorithm notion, and so on. I, he, he, he's food for thought. He's shown a challenge here. And what I've tried to do in these brief 50 minutes here is to show how can we react to something like this? What are we to do? Well, most of us know there is a skyhook. Yeah. see it. Well, let me conclude with this then. In believing in skyhooks, as he said, in believing that there is a God who created the world, that that knowledge that we have, we hold very faithfully and with profound convictions of the great truths and beauty that come from that, that we should live a life not only of our ethics and our cooperation with another, but intellectually, that shows the significance and relevance of that idea, not in a judgmental or condemnatory way towards those who disagree with it, but in a way that hopefully the, the communication of such 
both in our ideas and our life, would be even more contagious to the society. Yes, about five to ten years ago, I think some one of the guy, head guys in charge of the Human Genome Project. I mean, I think he is out as a, a professor. He uh, is Watson. Yeah, you, know, you know him. Yeah. So if uh, if you could bring some of his quotes, maybe next week it would make us feel better. <laughs> well, I, the guys next week are, are going to be even more vitriolic than Dennis. Maybe, maybe it's a balance. Well, maybe I'll come back and I'll, I'll bring there. some scientists who have argued that there's legitimate reasons to have religious beliefs. Maybe that'll be another time. I'll close with a prayer. We're grateful, Lord, for thy wonderful acts of creation and redemption that thou hast bestowed and have welcomed us into. Pray, O Lord, that those become so powerful and vibrant in our lives that we become testimony, not of, of a wrath and oppressive deity, but of a wonderful, loving, gracious God who brings all into his presence. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.